0: Hi, it's Saturday. It's the Saturday show and a special shout out to just listener Kevin Owen McCarthy. How'd your week go? Kevin McCarthy, K-O-K-O'd but that inspires me. It inspires me to bring you two segments from the past. Sometimes we do one from the week and one from the vaults. It was the week, this week, this week that was that turned Kevin McCarthy into the speaker that was. It was this week that inspired these two segments. We cast our eyes back not that long ago, but in a period of Republican ascendance and stability. And think about Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich, I don't think, is smiled upon too brightly by history. But in this moment, as of the last ouster of the Speaker of the House, he was very vocal about his disappointment with Matt Gates, because Newt Gingrich is a real politician who understands politics and certainly understands power. And to understand Newt Gingrich and what the 90s brought us in terms of his definition of power in Washington – I bring you two different interviews with two esteemed just guests and friends. The first, uh, with me, I don't think each other. The first is Steve Kornacki. In 2018, he came on to talk about his book, The Red and the Blue, the 1990s and the birth of political tribalism. And then Julian Zelizer came on in 2020 to talk about his book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Both of these are excellent. We'll play them back-to-back, maybe a break in between, give you a break, give you a breather, like Matt Gates and seven other very angry Republicans did for Kevin McCarthy. Enjoy. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter And not to wallow in, he could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter, or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview, it was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H.A. Are like the first three letters in hard B I N G E as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The red and the blue there were once a couple of primary colors. And what happened to yellow? Funny story about yellow. It'll come around later in our tale. But now the red and the blue mean a couple of kinds of states, a couple of ways of thinking, and really a gigantic divide in America. Where did it all start? God? No. Well, the colors, maybe. We could debate rainbows forever. The start as pinpointed by my guest, Steve Kornacki, was in the 1990s, and it is the subject of his new book, The Red and the Blue, the 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. Steve Kornacki. Thanks. Thanks for coming by. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So the '90s—it's it, a—it's fitting that it's your first book because the events that you describe actually do map on to your consciousness as a person in the world and a thinker about politics, right? This was the stuff that you were watching as a little kid, going, "It's exciting, but I don't know I understand it." I,
1: I, yeah, it's—I I remember so many of the events. Obviously, so many of the major characters, even—even even the minor ones. I kind of, you know, had you know, sort of fragments of knowledge about. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of those characters are still on the political stage today, though. You know, Refusing Gingrich, to leave. Hanging right, on, you know, the, but yeah. You got just today, you know, the Clintons are, are are about to go out on tour. Hillary Clinton's answering questions about Bill Clinton. Newt Gingrich is still all over the place. So they're still so relevant yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. But I, I also think that one of the things I felt just, just living through it um, the first time around was it, it felt to me like it was all building towards something. Yes. Something big was going to result from all of this sort of political warfare in the 90s. I don't think I ever would have thought it was this, but I think a generation later we're at the point where we can kind of say, yeah, this is what it was leading to.
0: And we probably should have realized why it was happening beyond the personalities of the people involved. And I don't think it was pointed out to me at the time, as much as I understand it now in retrospect, that this is all a consequence of the ideological sorting of the parties. You and I right now in this conversation, we we should talk about specific tactics that Gingrich pulled and specific dynamics, but that is the big overlay. When you had political parties for centuries, that could mean different things in different parts of the country. It was like, you know, the genome of canine, and there was health throughout the genome. But then when you start having purebreds, you have hip dysplasia. You know, this is what I think is going on with the parties. And then the question is, did Gingrich always have a strategy or did he always know that certain tactics were going to play?
1: Gingrich, I think, had a a strategy to nationalize politics. Yeah. Because I think what what, what animated him was this, this split that he was starting to see. Think of it this way. He comes to Congress in 1978. On his third try, he gets elected in 78. And he's looking at a country where the Republican Party just a couple of years earlier with Richard Nixon was capable of winning 49 states. Uh, Massachusetts, you know, the one McGovern state, 61 percent of the vote, one of the most thorough landslides we've ever seen in a presidential election. And yet this same Republican Party that's capable of that in a national presidential election is incapable of even getting within spitting distance of the House. I yeah. mean, at that point, when Gingrich gets there, it's been a generation in the minority, and it's not like we don't have midterm elections in the 70s that are, you know, we have one coming up where the Democrats need 23 seats. They may get there, they may not, but it's totally doable for them. Yeah. You didn't have doable midterm elections. No, you elections had, through, 90 and 100 right, seat majority. Just enormous, right. enormous, yeah, enormous yeah. advantages for the Democrats. So Gingrich looked at that and said, well, that's the missing link here. You've got, you know, Tip O'Neill was the House Speaker when Newt Gingrich got there, and the famous line from Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. Mm -hmm. And and so people sort of, you know, they made their judgment about political party based on what was in their backyard. And Newt said, well, you know what? Look at George McGovern, who lost those 49 states to Nixon. Look what he represented culturally. You know, it was was activists who who got behind him, anti-war, cultural liberalism, all of that sort of thing. He said, look, if you can make every voter in the country see a choice between a conservative Republican Party and a Democratic Party of McGovernism,
0: we're never going to lose another election. So that was the opportunity he saw. It should have taken, I think it should have taken someone else, the word you use is nationalized. Republicans do well nationally. A Republican will crush in the South, will win the South. There was a Southern strategy. It would seem so glaringly obvious that someone said, what we're doing with the presidential race, we need to do that with the Mississippi 3rd District and the Texas 12th District and all these places that go for the Republican in the presidential election and keep putting Democrats in Congress. And I think one of the things that, that happened, too, was that the Democrats who were getting elected to Congress, though, from the
1: South, weren't liberals. They were conservatives. They were more conservative than right. members of the Republican Party in the House. You had these conservative Democrats in the South who keep getting reelected, and then you would keep having Republican presidents, and they'd vote with the Republican presidents. They'd vote with Nixon. They'd vote with Reagan on his tax cuts, and they'd go home and they'd tell their, their voters, hey, you like Reagan? Well, I vote with Reagan all the time, and then they'd get reelected. And, and Gingrich, basically, you know, it was frustrating to him, and it was frustrating to a lot of Republicans, but he basically said what you need to do is you need to create much clearer and sharper distinctions between the parties so that the message to the voters back in those districts is you, you may like this Democrat you're voting for, this conservative Democrat, but they're empowering a party that's right. fundamentally hostile to your values. Gingrich did this thing that was unthinkable in Congress at the time. He said he's going to, he wants to go after and take down the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, on ethics charges. He went after Jim Wright on ethics. He's trying to shoot the general, basically. He didn't do this in the House, but the Republicans at that point looked at what Wright had just done. He'd been doing that kind of thing, and they said, you know what? Let's let our attack dog loosen him. And, of course, Gingrich takes down Jim Wright. That puts Gingrich in the House leadership, and from there... That's the guy who confronts Bill Clinton, and I think changes American politics. In the How
0: legit were the ethics charges? It was like seven thousand dollars in book royalties. It was yeah, it was mo- I mean, it was, it, was, it was. a book. It was it was like a pamphlet. Oh and, really? And I, all have these, you yeah. seen the book? Yeah, I've seen. I've so this, heard, you're not going to. i never f- held a copy right, of that it's, book.
1: Right. It is. It's a collection of his speeches. Oh wow! <laughs> Imagine <laughs> sure, the royalty no. money there. <laughs> and this was, you know, this was not exactly Cicero here or something. <laughs> right, and um, right. what it was, there's there's rules in the House about royalties that you can accept. Yeah. So he's essentially getting a fifty-five percent royalty on this book, which is unheard of in the, in the uh, publishing industry, but yes. friends, supporters, wealthy folks around Fort Worth, which is where he was from, could buy the book, could buy it in bulk, know that the money was going to him. Right. It's just and, a way to give him some money, but he
0: didn't make much money off it. Right. It ra- but it raised all sorts of conflict. I, mean, right. I think it was about 55 grand, something like that. Under normal times, would he have gotten, should he have gotten just admonished and a slap on the wrist if we weren't so radicalized? It's a, it's a fair question. Um, I would say
1: one of the, the, the turning points for Gingrich in that push was he got joined by common cause, you know, common cause, which is more on the left, you know, good government group forming post Watergate. You could make a case that Wright should have gone for that. Yeah. Uh, should have been gone for that. The interesting thing was that when Wright finally resigned June 1st, 1989, he gives his speech on the house floor. He, he, he frames it as a sacrifice. He says, I consider my resignation, a sacrifice paraphrasing here that will help to cleanse this institution of what has infected it. And he's basically saying, this will be fine, Newt. You get this one, but this is the last one you get here. And yeah. Of course, and, of course, it is It is actually something very similar. You know, Gingrich, uh, uh, when he becomes speaker in 1994, signs this book deal uh, with Harper Collins, which is owned by uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch, gets a $4.5 million of, uh, book advance on it and it raises all these questions about ethics and conflict. All the things he was raising about Jim Wright comes back to,
0: to bite him. Yeah, but at least on the sexual stuff with Bill Clinton, there is no hypocrisy when it comes to Newt Gingrich. <laughs> well, we, uh, that, that was, <laughs> as we found found out later nude had some things going on at the same time <laughs> yes um so as a political science major at emory university uh which is New Gingrich's, <laughs> not where yeah. I taught, but where I right. went he went West Skull. Georgia College. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I signed up for a class, Political Communication in the Soviet Union, in the fall. And when the class convened in the spring, it was called Political Communication in the former Soviet <laughs> Union. <Right. laughs> but the other thing is I kept getting taught. This was 92 and 94. I was taking classes in 94. Look, the one thing we know is incumbency has such an advantage, there will never, probably in our lifetime, be a Republican House of Representatives. And goddamn, were they wrong? <laughs>
1: the, and it, it, it had taken on a turn back then—the permanent Democratic majority.
0: Yeah. And at that point, 1994,
1: it had been 40 years, and this was—I I think this was key to Gingrich's rise too. Uh, so much of my book is about all of these wars in the 1990s. But to even have Gingrich in the position he was in the 90s to to pick a lot of these fights with Clinton, he needed to complete this rise from the back benches in the late 70s and, and through the 80s. That if You looked at it. This guy arrives in Congress. The Democrats have, have run this thing for a, a generation. He tells Republicans, I'm going to lead you to the majority someday. They think he's nuts. It, it's Newt Gingrich. He talks about world historical things and McCarthyism. He's using all the stuff that we recognize now, but yeah. it's not landing with his colleagues. Right. This is just not the way people talk there. But what Gingrich slowly got Republicans to see, he was telling them, you're being trampled. You're used to being walked all over. You've gotten comfortable with it. And the old guard didn't like hearing it. But every couple of years, new members would come in and then there'd be moments when the Democrats would behave that way. I mean, 40 years in power is going to make you take a lot of things for granted institutionally. The missing ingredient, it turned out. Because it it frustrated Republicans for all those years, even as Gingrich starts getting traction and they're doing these things in the House, these dramatic things. They're still getting clobbered in in, in midterm elections Uh, and they're, they're no closer to a majority. All it took, really... It was Bill Clinton getting elected. Mm-hmm. And now you've got a Democratic president with a massive Democratic majority in the House and the Senate. And Clinton in 93, 94 moves on a very ambitious agenda. There's a lot of pent-up stuff. It's, it's health care reform. But not a very liberal agenda. Oh, I, I, think, na- I think doing health care reform, I think doing a tax hike you know, right. in 93, I think those were the stimulus. NAFTA I, I would put in a different category. But I think that Clinton in 93, 94... Okay, that was before
0: welfare reform. Yes, yeah, yes. Right and now.
1: I think Clinton, 94 changed yes. the trajectory of Clinton's presidency. But those first two years... If Mario Cuomo had been president, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. great liberal hero from New York, I don't think in terms of the agenda, it's it's much different than what Clinton ends up pursuing. Pursuing, but he doesn't achieve health care. He doesn't right. achieve a well lot because of what it. he yeah. meets—that's that's the turning point, I think. Because Gingrich has now full tactical control over the Republican Party in Congress, and this this is the first time a Democratic president comes in and meets this kind of Republican Party that doesn't want to give an inch. That sees in every one of these agenda items Clinton puts out there not a chance to compromise and get. Half of what they're looking for, but a chance to draw a line and say they're the party of big government, of waste, of liberalism run run amok, and we're protecting you, the average overlooked American. And they they ride it to you know, 1994, 54 seat game, the Republican Revolution.
0: Um how big a deal was C SPAN in all of this? Which I think is a question that's never been uttered before. <laughs> some
1: of my some of my favorite uh, uh parts of the research for this was going through the, the C SPAN archives, Such which are archive. all online. Yeah. Everything they've ever aired. And very
0: searchable yep. and yep. It's by amazing. Term, See, yeah. uh, all these these Newt moments you can go back and find and you can watch them. It's, it's often um, like a bar on the bottom uh, and interference, digital interference. Yeah. So it's not the best feed, right. but yeah.
1: No, it's like watching <laughs> your antenna TV in the 80s or something. But um, what Newt recognized, he comes to Congress in 1979, which is the same year that C-SPAN they throw the C-SPAN camera in the chamber, and they're going to televise everything, and they're going to have a cable channel devoted to it. This is the cable industry's sort of, you know, nod to civic uh, responsibility. And the cable industry, remember, people are are just for the first time getting it everywhere. The, the 80s, it explodes. Right. But most people at the start of the decade didn't have it. So Newt found this. There's this provision in the House rules that says, basically, at the close of business every day, any member can take the floor for however am- amount of time they want for any reason they want to right. just talk. Right, and which
0: is usually way to go b- local boys. Scouts. Right, right. Two- 14. Here's the
1: principal in my district who retired for 40 years. We yeah, salute yeah. you, Mrs. Mrs. Smith. Um, Gingrich starts claiming the time, and his fellow members are like, Yeah, you have it, you know, you're talking to an empty chamber. What do you want to do that for? He's talking to the camera. And he's got an, you know a band of about a half a dozen allies. They're not talking about, you know, page twenty-six of this bill should have a comma here and up here. They are talking about national themes. The corrupt Democratic Party, the corrupt Democrat machine, the opportunity society that Republicans want to offer. They are producing What we would now call a cable news talk show, it's it's the Sean Hannity show being done on the floor of the house for an hour a night on C-SPAN, and people are are going through their dials, you know, at home. They don't keep rating statistics, but you know, some of them are are catching
0: it. And yeah, who's this guy? There were only like forty channels back then. Yeah, three of them were showing the same Beastmaster. I think (laughs) (laughs) that that was in heavy rotation (laughs) back in the day. But okay, so there were no there were no ratings. how big an impact did it have? I, I have no way of knowing. The it impact. seemed to us, as you more than me, maybe not, I don't know. It seemed to us like we're political junkies. We remember that. Something was going on, but did it get written about in the mainstream press? It, it got and- written
1: about because he used it to force this showdown with Tip O'Neill. Yeah. And what he did was, in one of those late night sessions, Gingrich and his allies called out 10 Democratic members by name and, and almost accused them of treason. And one of the Democrats they called out by name was Eddie Boland, who was from Massachusetts and was Tip O'Neill's best friend and roommate in Washington Washington, D.C. for years. And O'Neill, as a speaker of the House, has the power to call up C-SPAN and say, you know, turn the camera off or whatever. And he calls them up and says, I want you to take that camera and pan the entire chamber, show that audience that this, you know, this clown is talking to an empty chamber and, you know, he's trying to make my friend look like a coward. My friend isn't there. No one's there. So he does it. C-SPAN does that. And Gingrich catches wind with it. And now he's been given, you know, a gift from the gods here. Gingrich, you know, accuses, you know, Neil, this is the dictatorial abuse of power. This is McCarthyism of the left. And he demands time to address uh, the entire house to explain this. So full session, the house is full, you know, 10 a.m., official business day, O'Neill recognizes the gentleman from Georgia and then announces from the speaker's podium, he says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to sit among the members because I'm very interested to hear this, and O'Neill mm-hmm. thinks he's going to get some kind of apology. And Gingrich starts talking, and 10 minutes in, it's, it's, it's all Gingrich stuff you would expect, and O'Neill boils over, and he stands up, and he demands to be recognized, and Gingrich knows where this is going, and he, he recognizes Tip O'Neill, and O'Neill just says, I want you to know, well, you stood in that floor, and you did the... The lowest thing I've ever seen in 32 years here. Yeah, Trent Lott, who's standing right behind uh, Gingrich, one of his allies, says, uh, Mr. Speaker, I, I move that the Speaker's
0: words be taken down. Right. Because Tip O'Neill's broken house rules. He's you, a directly attacked member. You can't member. say you. You have to say the member. Yes. And sometimes they let you get away with it if it's not so bad. Right. You literally can't say you in the house. And, yeah. it's,
1: and it's, the by our standards in politics, the words that O'Neill said were not that inflammatory. Right. Right. But what it was, was the face of of the permanent Democratic Party, the Speaker of the House, who's been there since the early 1950s, the leader of this, they have like a 100-seat majority, and this third-term gadfly from Georgia, whose own Republican colleagues have not taken him seriously, now has the parliamentarian scrambling to try to find some way not to reprimand Tip O'Neill. Mm-hmm. There's 15-minute break you know, as they try to figure this out. And you can watch this on the C-SPAN clip. There's Republicans coming up to Gingrich. He's standing in the well of the House, coming up to him who have not, these are Republicans who wouldn't give him the time of day yeah. until that moment in his career shaking his hand, patting him on the back. The parliamentarian comes back. They ha- they rule, you know, in favor of the Republicans. The Speaker's words are taken down. Never happened to a Speaker of the House before. Gingrich gets to keep talking. When he finishes, he leaves the floor. There's an ovation, a standing ovation on the Republican side, and he's he's not a gadfly anymore. Now he's giving him a taste of, this is what you guys haven't been doing. This is what you guys could be doing, and this is what it feels like. And they start getting mail. You know, the folks back home who are watching C-SPAN at night and say, asking them, why aren't there more of you like Newt Gingrich? And they they can they pick
0: up on it pretty quick that this is first, it's what their voters want, but it's what they want too. The red and the blue. The 1990s and the birth of political tribalism. Oh, it's so much more than that. It's basically an analysis of uh, our current Michigas, if you will. Steve Kornacki is the author. He is MSNBC and NBC News national political correspondent. And you'll see him at the big board every day between now and the election. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for hosting the show a couple of weeks ago. That's thank right. You, yes. No, thank you, Mike. Appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. A case can be made that the most consequential American political figure of the last 30 years who wasn't a president was Newt Gingrich. He reshaped the Republican Party, essentially in his image, and redefined and defined the era that we live in now of extreme partisanship. This is the subject of a new book called Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the Republican Party, it is written by Julian Zelizer, who joins me for, what is this, the seventh time? Something like that, <laughs> yeah. I just want yeah. to join the show. How many how many books have you written in the last five years?
2: Uh, this is my third book in the last five years, and I've edited a couple as well. I think
0: you've been on for all of them, yeah. So
2: I've, I've long been fascinated by Newt Gingrich just because
0: I am the age I am, and I remembered when he came to reshape the Republican Party and Now there's new appraisals of him being written. But I want to go back, and you go way back to his life. I want to go back to when he was uh, a a new congressman and he exploited C-SPAN. And he used the fact that C-SPAN put cameras in the House to essentially pursue his agenda. And my thinking has always been whenever anyone exploits a system, it shows that that system was exploitable. And so I wonder if that moment you could also talk about other moments that were key to his rise, if that says something about Gingrich or says mostly about the fissures and weaknesses of the system that existed that Gingrich moved into.
2: Well, it's it's both meaning it takes a politician to exploit those vulnerabilities. Sometimes people don't see them. And C-SPAN was a new channel. The House of Representatives had just let cameras cover what they were doing uh, in, in the 1978 and before then you couldn't really see what was going on. And Gingrich, he's elected in 78, and he realizes in the early 80s, boy, here's this cable channel that not uh, doesn't get the same kind of ratings as a network, but still has a lot of viewers. Uh, and what he realizes also is that according to the rules of the house, the cameras could only cover the person speaking. So in 1983, he basically does this trick where he goes on every night and he talks about why are Democrats not supporting Ronald Reagan's war against communism in Central America? And he and a small group of colleagues every night make speeches Democrats are weak on defense, Democrats are not protecting our national interest. And they call out Democrats and say, Can you respond? And all you can see on C SPAN is him or the person speaking. And it looks like the Democrats have no response. But they were speaking at a part part of the day that no one was in the chamber. So they were talking to an empty room. And eventually, Speaker Tip O'Neill blows up and he turns the cameras to show that it's an empty room. But that becomes known as cam scam. And very early on, Gingrich realizes the power of television for partisan objectives.
0: Now, this is also a time in American history where scam was sometimes affixed as the suffix, like abscam, but now it's just all gate, everything is a gate, just wanted to know that. But was that really important in his rise more than symbolically? Was public opinion, did he turn public opinion with that C-SPAN stunt?
2: Well, he doesn't turn public opinion, but what happens after he does that? the networks, all three of the major television networks, CBS, ABC and NBC, cover him. And they they broadcast stories about this guy, Newt Gingrich, and what he's doing on Capitol Hill. And, and until then, no one covered him. And, and he was really a minor player. And that was really the game. And, and he gets himself on national television. He becomes a point of discussion uh, with all the anchors. And this attack he's launching about the Democrats as a corrupt establishment gets on the air. And, and it's quite important. I think that's one of the first key moments where he goes from being a backbencher to all of a sudden you see this guy's going to be a national player.
0: And this gets to his tactics and his strategy. So his tactics were to get maximum, mostly television exposure, but it doesn't hint at what his overall strategy is. Tactics are just a means to instill, install the strategy. So what's his strategy for the Republican Party?
2: Well, you got to remember at this time, Republicans had not been in control of the House of Representatives since 1954. Uh, and they had only controlled the Senate they would only control it from 81 to uh, 87. So Democrats controlled Capitol Hill. So the goal was for Republicans to take over Congress. This was the objective and he argued there would never be a real Reagan revolution if Democrats were still powerful in Congress. And so he basically made the case Republicans couldn't play nice. Republicans had to stop worrying about civility and governance. And they had to embrace a much more aggressive approach to fighting the Democrats and to literally bring them down from power. Uh, and and that was the objective. It was political power for a party that had been a minority since the 1950s.
0: Right, and towards the end of the book, uh, you quote an interview he did with Bill Kristol where he summarized the Republicans' establishment goals as pre-Gingrich. He summarized it as get as much as you can without being disruptive. But what did he change the goal to? Uh,
2: he changed the goal to be disruptive uh, as a way to get everything you can. And uh, he, he said that older Republican leaders, Crystal uh, wasn't one of the people he was focused on so much as the House Minority Leader, Bob Michael, that they had to teach younger Republicans to be much more confrontational, to do things like he did with the cam scam and the, the C-SPAN stunt or to use language that wasn't subtle, that was blistering about opponents and to literally take down the most powerful members of the Democratic Party. If you didn't do those sorts of things, there was no way Republicans were going to climb to the top of power. That was his basic argument, partisanship over everything else, including governance. Was he
0: right in the short term and right in the long term?
2: Well, he was right in that the strategy works, and he, uh, my book looks at him bringing down the Speaker of the House in 1989. That was a big thing to happen. Uh, the Speaker resigns, and in 94, Gingrich uh, is the Speaker of the House, and Republicans have done exactly what he said. So the tactics worked, but there was a cost. It was a do-anything tactic that eroded relations on Capitol Hill and lowered the bar in terms of what was permissible. And he was willing to destroy institutions. He was willing to destroy the norms that politicians depended on. And it's hard to put those back. And so uh, he was right, but the costs were absolutely immense.
0: Right. So that's why I wonder if he could be right in the long term, because there is usually a limiting principle to anyone in any situation going scorched earth, which is that after you go scorched earth, guess what you inherit? A bunch of scorched earth. And it's it's interesting that he did not see that, or maybe he's very smart. Maybe he did see it and just thought it was worth it enough in the short term. He's become a rich and much and, and powerful person. He was powerful then. Or maybe he really didn't see it and, th- and thought that, I don't know, it's possible that he thought that Republican conservative ideas were so good that once they got power, they do the job for him.
2: He was aware of the dangers, even as he's bringing down the Speaker of the House in '89, he's under attack at that point. Democrats start saying you're accusing the speaker of being unethical, and they raise all kinds of ethical concerns about him. and And he talks openly in, in press conferences. This is what's going to happen. This is how they're going to try to bring me down, and it's almost inevitable. But I think I think really he just has a immense sense of self. And I think he believed that even if there was a scorched earth, he and the GOP would come out on top and they would somehow continue to win the war. He's like a a warrior, a political warrior. And that was just how he thought. Uh, And and he had immense confidence in what he could do, which was part of why he was so successful. And it's not just that he inherits scorched earth. He himself will ultimately fall from power for ethical problems uh, as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, he got Jim Wright's scalp. Woohoo! That was over a very minor ethical lapse about a book deal and payment for bulk purchases. Is that
2: what it was? That's right. He took these very small stories that were circulating in the press, both in the Washington press and the Texas press, which is where Wright was from, and and there are lots of different stories of uh, not unethical behavior but questionable behavior, and the two that stick one is that uh, Jim Wright used to sell bulk books to different groups who he spoke with because at that time, members can earn as much as they wanted in book royalties, even though there were limits on the honoraria they could earn. So it was a way to circumvent the ethics rules and make some extra money. And then he had a relationship, a business relationship and a friendship with a real estate developer uh, in Texas named George Malik in his district. And neither of those broke any ethical rules. They didn't break any laws. They just looked bad. They felt bad. But what Gingrich does, and he uses the media to do this, is he blows this up into another Watergate. And he essentially, and he says, he doesn't essentially say, Jim Wright is the most corrupt speaker ever in American history. And he whips Washington up into a frenzy. Uh, to the point, this becomes a, an ethics committee investigation and ultimately in the middle of it, Wright decides, I'm going to step down because this is too much for the party and this is too much for Washington. And does Gigrich
0: himself think he won't get caught? He personally is clean. We could talk about his own ethics, but even the... Charges of uh, sexual impropriety as regards Bill Clinton. Considering what's in his own path, I know yours is a political science history, but what's the psychology of Gingrich? Seemingly not recognizing that he is just as vulnerable to all the charges that he's lobbing at others.
2: No, it's a it's a big question, and and some of those improprieties are on the table in the 80s already, there was a story, a famous story in Mother Jones about the personal life of of Gingrich that comes out in 1984. It includes affairs that he's had. Uh, It includes him being not a very nice person to people around him. Uh, And then there's ethics questions already in the 80s about how he sold books, even as he's attacking Jim Wright for doing the same. But the psychology is really something to study. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know how you diagnose it. But he doesn't care. I mean, that is the difference between him and Jim Wright. He just keeps moving forward when these charges are lobbed at him. He's convinced that the charges against him are somehow different. They're not the same. Uh, And at some level, he refuses to concede even when these come at him. Unless you can get him, he's not going to stop. And that psychology continues, as you said, to the point where he's leading an impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1998, while he himself uh, was was known to have an, a sexual affair. So I, I think that gets to the essence of, of who he is.
0: Yeah, I think that there is the makeup of a certain sort of person, and Trump is this way, that they are so convinced that everyone is corrupt because they are corrupt, and they don't think the way to argue that point or prove that point or which points to uh, lean into and which to avoid, are at all actually defined by anyone's actual behavior. It all becomes an argument that you could win, so maybe he just thinks he's better at the media, doesn't matter that he has skeletons in his closet, he knows how to uh, fight fire with fire.
2: And I think it's important part of him because at some level, for me, studying him, it, it reveals he didn't really care about the ethical issues. Meaning he saw all these ethics rules that Congress put into place after Watergate to try to clean Washington up, to try to make it a more accountable place. He didn't care about that. He just saw the ethics rules as another weapon that could be used to, to go after the Democrats. And and you see that he didn't care because of the life he lived. And they were totally at odds with what he was saying about the Democratic Party. He himself was guilty of the same kind of behavior. So so I think that insight gets to who he was and, and the importance for him of partisan goals and his willingness to do just about anything uh, to win power for the GOP.
0: Yeah, yeah. Roy Cohen was like that. A lot of dictators are, are like that. It's not based on your own behavior. It's based on just what fights do you think you could win. That's interesting. So in addition to Gingrich pushing partisanship along, at the same time, the ideological sorting of the parties was becoming perfect. And a lot of political science theory points to that as what really created the partisanship of America. There was no incentive For a Democrat to ever be anything but as liberal as you can be and the same for a Republican. And by all these measures, the Republicans and the Democrats have really um, gone more to the left and right. And you only worry about being primaried, not general elections. So if all that is true or is true to some extent, to what degree does Gingrich and the way he goes about defining partisanship, to what degree does that define the partisanship that we experience? You know his own personal vindictiveness and flavor and fervor. And to what degree is he just the messenger? Someone was going to do it, and we pretty much be in this situation, even if a person named Newt Gingrich never left Pennsylvania.
2: That's a great question, and I I think about that a lot. And I've I've always written about both sides of the story. The the big structural forces like the parties sorting themselves that lead to a more partisan country. But I'm also fascinated by individual leaders who I do believe make a difference. And uh, partisanship isn't all the same. There's different kinds of partisanship. You can have parties that are far apart on key issues. You can have two parties that are pretty disciplined in terms of keeping everyone on the same page, and not voting with the other team. Uh, but I think what made Gingrich different and why he was important is he not only introduced a much more ruthless vision of how you then pursue these goals, uh, but he was very successful at promoting it. I mean, he is one of the reasons senior Republicans like George H.W. Bush, who's vice president, and runs for president in 1988, Basically start to accept what what he's going to do. And so I do believe he's a case where the individual matters and helped to popularize a much nastier form of partisanship than we had to have. We could have still had two very strong disciplined parties, but I don't believe it had to go in this direction.
0: So. How much cooperation did you have from Gingrich during
2: this project? I did, and I didn't. Meaning, I never was able to interview him for the book. I had many times I tried, and, and it kept getting postponed. Um, but I did get access, and 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 he granted me access to his congressional papers in Georgia, in West Georgia College, which is where he was a professor. And I must say, they are the best congressional papers I've ever used, and I've used many of them in terms of having memos and staff correspondence and, and really just tons of material outlining what he was doing throughout his career. And for a historian, that's always anyway the heart of what I do. So the fact I had access to that was really just invaluable and, and gave me the ability to write about this period uh, in a way that you can't probably, if you're just doing it through a journalistic lens. I even found a handwritten note, which were the notes he was taking as Jim Wright resigned on the floor and made this very famous speech warning that if the parties didn't stop, they would be swept up in a mindless cannibalism. And I found just tucked in a box, Gingrich's handwritten notes uh, at the time. And he's mad because he says Jim Wright is blaming him. He's blaming partisanship, but he was guilty. Uh, But he ends with some note, and I'm paraphrasing, that, well, it doesn't really matter because what's most important is he's talking about me. Uh, So it shows that he's arrived as a player. And to find material like that is, for a historian, the best treasure you can get.
0: Julian Zelizer is the Malcolm Forbes Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. His latest book is Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Thanks, Julian. Thanks for having me. And that's it for the show. Corey Wara produces The Gist and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. We will speak to you on Monday with reflections on the day to honor Columbus, but also the indigenous and then whole all brand new episodes on Tuesday. Talk to you then.